Before reading the scripture text this morning, I just want to point out the flower arrangements behind me. Our thanks to Joanna Bernardini for coming early this morning and uh, beautifying this space. We're really thankful to have some uh, fresh flowers behind us this day. Sermon text is Luke 24, verses 33 through 49. We'll be picking up where we left off last week. Luke chapter 24, verses 33 through 49. And they rose, that is the two disciples from Emmaus who've just seen Jesus. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem you are witnesses of these things and behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high this is God's word now this is the second time in two weeks second time in this chapter that we've seen Jesus emphasize the necessity of his suffering as he did in order to rise as he had we saw it last week in verse 26 where it says he showed them beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself and we saw it in verse 46 this week the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead so verse 26 last week was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things in his glory verse 46 this week same emphasis why do the disciples need this emphasized? Because you would think as disciples, they should, they should be clued in already. But the gospel writers are, are honest about the doubts and struggles the disciples had. The doubts were being dispelled. And these disciples would go on to demonstrate incredible courage, incredible courage of conviction uh, as they would face persecution that was harsh and ongoing against them. But here they still needed some dots connected and that's why the emphasis on it was foretold the Christ would suffer. The prophets didn't know how, they didn't know the means, but they knew that this one they were seeing was going to come, uh, was going to suffer and reign. And now we know how both is possible. He conquered the grave. He suffered to death. 
but he conquered the grave. And so they believed that Jesus suffered and died. They'd seen that with their own eyes, but they had not yet believed he lived on after dying, which is being emphasized, his living on after dying over and over and over again by way of the narration of these events, by way of Jesus appearing, plural appearances, by way of Jesus reviewing the places that he appeared in all of Scripture, and even by his way of eating fish, verses 42 and 43. What is going on here in this passage as we have it? There's, there's two things happening here. One has to do with Jesus authenticating his true life and living. And then the other thing going on is something meant to be viral. Jesus tasking his disciples to, to spread what I'm going to call the, the good infection. There's two headings under which we'll consider our passage today. Authentication and infection. Now I get good infection from C.S. Lewis, his book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter called Good Infection, where what he means by good infection, he says, Jesus came to this world to spread the kind of life he has. Lewis called that good infection, a ministry of con contagion. In fact, uh, in John's version of things, John chapter 20, there's uh, this this Jesus breathing on them. John chapter 20, verse 22, when he had said this, that he was sending them out, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What, a, what an image for uh, these times. They were told to be his witnesses. Luke chapter 24 here, verse 48. To witness, the, the idea I wanna connect with you uh, to witnesses to spread an infection, a good infection. Help people catch Easter, as it were. That is, to learn how to gain the kind of life Jesus has, which is resurrection life, glorified life. So we'll use these two headings this morning as we move through this particular text, Luke 24, verses 33 to 49, authentication and infection. Those are my two points. First, authentication. The way Jesus authenticated his life and living for these who already knew him and yet are yet still discovering things about him, like he really lives after really dying. Look again at verse 36, Luke 24, verse 36, as they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And as you just follow the progression of the narrative, he, he speaks to them. They hear him. They also see him. He appears to them. He invites them, verse 39, to touch him, showing them the nail wounds in verse 40. <clears throat> Excuse me. Showing them the nail wounds, verse 40, and then asks for something to eat. Verse 41, what is going on here? He's engaging their senses. Sight, sound, taste, touch. Remember how last week 
Jesus appearing to two disciples on their way home to Emmaus. Remember how he didn't draw attention to his appearing to them? He didn't relieve their stress with, hey, look, it's me. Don't be sad anymore. Instead, he took them through where he appeared in the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, as he mentions in verse 44. But now back in Jerusalem, on the night of resurrection day, with these two from Emmaus, joining with the eleven and those with them as the scene has been set for us, this time Jesus does draw attention to his appearing. Verse 39, see my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So what we get in Luke 24 is a both and. Jesus authenticated his life after death through his word explained, yes, and also their senses engaged. Why engage the senses? Well, we tend not to doubt our senses. You think about it. I may not be able to identify everything my senses are picking up. So, for instance, uh, sense of smell. I, I may not have uh, fine skills there like a chef, for instance, can distinguish uh, nuances between spices. But it doesn't take expertise to use our senses. I know when I'm seeing. I know when I'm tasting. I know when I'm touching. I know when I'm smelling. I know when I'm hearing. Don't, don't lose the point for exceptions. Somebody says, well, now there are some sound frequencies happening that you can't pick up on. Okay, Mr. Know-it, thank you. But we get the overall point. The overarching reason for appealing to their senses is because we tend not to doubt our senses. Our, our senses are, are immediate to us. And Jesus utilizes this. The way Jesus authenticated for them his actual embodied life and living by, uh, after death by crucifixion is sensory. Now, we're well downstream from them which Jesus addressed with these disciples. If I may go back to John chapter 20, where I cross-referenced earlier the, the passage where it says he breathes on them. In John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus says to the same group of disciples in the same moment, John's version of the events, John adds that Jesus says to them, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He says to Thomas, you, you believe me because you're, you're seeing me right now? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. But, but how do you authenticate your aliveness to people who had seen you? To people who lived with you for three years and who are in this moment exhausted in their emotional reserves. What is the emotional state of the disciples this weekend of Jesus being crucified. It's just what we'd expect it to be. Look at the terms, verse 37, startled and frightened. They're extra antsy and on edge. Verse 38, troubled and doubts arising in their hearts. They know he died, but now they're seeing him alive again and the effect on them, even in these moments as we Read it in Luke 24, the effect on them. It's like uh, when you hit the ignition of a supercharged engine and you watch the needle on that tachometer bump. 
before you, you put it in a, to drive. Their, their mouths are open, their eyes are wide, they, their chests are swelling, their adrenaline is, is pumping. They're going in the moment from startled and frightened and troubled and doubts arising in their hearts to, I can't believe this, but, but I do believe it. They're marveling, verse tells us. They're marveling at what's happening and who is before them engaging their senses. Is, is, is this true? Could it be true? It has to be true. It is true. Jesus authenticates himself to them this way intentionally and necessarily for what they're being tasked to immediately go and do. They are about to undertake, verse 49 says they're to wait in Jerusalem for special empowering to do this, but they are going into a very hostile world to carry the message of one who not only died, but now lives. But let's think for a moment here about what they're in the grip of. Let's think for a moment about being frightened, being troubled. Text says they were. Text talks about their doubting. This is not the only place that, that addresses the disciples' doubts. John 20 that I've read, uh, the Great Commission right before it's given says that some, some doubted. Think about what it is to be in the grip of any of that. To be in the grip of, of fears and, and worries and troubles and doubts is to be dominated by those things. And when you get dominated by any of that, you, you get immobilized. All you can see is the thing that's troubling you. Let's just take doubt because doubt is the direction in which our cultural crosswinds are, are always blowing that is, we're encouraged in the culture in which we live uh, in, in the United States, a Western culture. We're, we're encouraged to, to disbelieve creeds. We're encouraged to trailblaze our own spirituality. It's considered an achievement to break out of Christian beliefs. Now, that wasn't happening to these disciples. When Jesus says to them, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Verse 38, this is not the kind of doubt that, that they were, were going through, of, of moving to, to unbelief. But for modern discipleship, because our broader culture treats doubting as the summit of intellectual experience, that that's authentic, and for young evangelical Christians especially, the, the cultural rewards are where? On the side of tossing out the truths we've inherited and starting over afresh. Again, this wasn't the kind of doubting arising in the disciples' hearts. The doubt rising in them was because all they could see was the death. It happened, the cross, the Jesus movement is over. There's an older book uh, called Resurrection, Release from Oppression uh, by Morton Kelsey. I'd be surprised if you've uh, heard of it. He was an Episcopal theologian, uh, believing Episcopal theologian who um, uh, was also a psychiatrist. And it's, it's interesting in this book, Kelsey makes belief in the resurrection central to mental health. It's a fascinating angle. He um, speaks of his own depression 
and its causes, both chemical and, and circumstantial, and tells how among the ways one who suffers that learns to cope, one of the ways, he says, is he had to learn how to invite the risen Christ into this. He says in one place, the, the only way he knew how to deal with the reality of evil in the world, which he found depressing and, and, and even more depressing to, to find evil in himself, was to lean in to what he knew of Jesus resurrected. His words were a quote from him, I found that there was no evil within me that could withstand the presence of the risen one. Now, a lot of work goes into getting there. Uh, it's not just a matter of, of believe it and that settles it or repeating mantras to ourselves, though uh, we do rehearse our beliefs often. And it's good to do that, particularly if you're prone to having doubts arise in your hearts. But, but these disciples in this passage, at, at this point, all they can see is the death of Jesus. It was dominating them. And so they had to see him alive. And Jesus authenticates for them. His truly human life is a truly indestructible life. The sensory experience of him, it releases the, the grip that fear and doubt had on them. But now, again, for us, we're downstream. Centuries removed from Jesus appearing this way. And we say, man, I, I wish Jesus would appear to me like that. I, I wish I could hear Jesus audibly speak to me. I wish he could join me over at Soulfish Cafe for a filet. I understand that completely. I don't fault anybody for, for saying that. We feel sometimes like we need the extra authentication but but recall what I read to you from John earlier blessed are those who have not seen me Jesus says and yet believe it's sensory limited for us though we do experience the internal confirmation of the Holy Spirit as we trust the Lord as we obey him but I reference Jesus' words to these disciples as John records them. I've done that a couple of times. We're in Luke 24, but I've been going to John 20 a couple of times. And, I, and I've done that because uh, our church has of late been in John's writings, namely the, the final uh, book in his contributions to the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And for a moment, I, I want to bring what we saw of Jesus in Revelation into Luke 24 here. Because John is one of the disciples in this room. He obviously knew what Jesus looked like and sounded like and even smelled like because he had spent three very close proximity years to him. But the next time John saw Jesus, the next time after what we're reading here in Luke 24, the next time John sees Jesus, John sees a Jesus he had not seen before. He sees in Luke 24 a Jesus resurrected, but in Revelation he sees a Jesus glorified. You remember what that Jesus looks like? Revelation chapter 1, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, 
and on turning saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head, he's describing Jesus. Revelation 1, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. They're not seeing him in Luke 24 like John would see him later in Revelation chapter 1. And as we will see him later as he appears in that place. John got to see Jesus both resurrected and glorified. But it's why Jesus said, hey, blessed are the ones who have not seen me and yet believe. What's the blessing? Seeing him. Faith becoming sight when it does. That's ahead for us. But for now, today, the emphasis is on seeing Jesus in and through his word. But what we have to understand is that back even when Jesus appeared to the disciples, he always took them back to his word anyway. Jesus said, this is how it has to be. And I know there are some people who will say, yeah, but that's just not good enough for me to go with what the, the word says and, and some, you know, experience of, uh, of the internal witness of, of the spirit. That, I, I need more than that. Some people say that and believe that. People close to us, people we love. Maybe especially people who've grown up in the church and, and for whom doubts overtake and overcome. They, they say that. And to those who doubt that way, I, I know of no better balm to offer than these words from Christian Wyman written in his book entitled My Bright Abyss. He talks about doubt this way. He says, is, is your doubting a sort of anxiety that feeds on itself and never seems to move you in any one direction? Is it an ironclad compulsion to refute, to find in even the most transfiguring experiences, your own or others, some rational or psychological explanation? Is it an almost religious commitment to doubt itself, an assuredness that absolute doubt is the highest form of faith? Wyman says there's something static and self-enthralled about these attitudes. Honest doubt, he calls it. Honest doubt is marked, it seems to me, by three qualities. Humility, which makes one's attitude impossible to celebrate. Insufficiency which makes it impossible to rest in a state of doubt, and mystery, which continues to tug you upward or at least outward even in your lowest moments. Why do these doubts arise in your hearts, Jesus says to his men? These doubts are insufficient and they knew it. They, they couldn't rest in them. They, they were tugged. Not just in this moment, but they were tugged upward and outward, wanting to believe. And, and not because that would make everything easier for them. It wouldn't. Believing in Jesus 
in their cultural context, was signing their own death warrant. I love how verse 41 puts it here. Disbelieving for joy is their response. As the heat uh, uh, comes on with the light. Moving from doubts arising, verse 38, to disbelieving for joy, verse 41. It's what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien called eucatastrophe, a word coin he made. The Greek word for thanks is eucharisto. We get the word for communion, the fancy word for communion, eucharist from it. It means thanks. And of course, catastrophe means disaster. And so Tolkien took those two words, eucatastrophe, put them together. A eucatastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story that pierces you with a joy that brings tears. They disbelieved for joy. Can you? Would you be willing to consider this Easter? Even if you've tuned in and you're not even sure why. It just felt right to do on Easter and we're the service you, you picked. We're grateful for that. But would you be willing to consider while I've got this moment with you. Would you be willing to consider this Easter whether your highest joy and deepest personal fulfillment could ever come from anchoring your personal identity and meaning and purpose in being a recipient of resurrection life. Do you think that could ever be true of you? And if you're willing to consider that, would you also be willing to consider that if a true relationship with God through Christ is all of grace, that even if you don't consider yourself to be somebody who is guilty of overly gross sins, the very fact that you have fears and, and doubts indicates our natural state before God. If you're willing to consider that a relationship with God through Christ is all of grace, would you also consider, if that's true, if it's all of grace, if the resurrection is true and grace is true, there's nothing God cannot ask of you. And that placing our life under his rule can make perfect sense when you've connected your highest joy and your deepest fulfillment to Jesus' life anew. These disciples caught Easter after three years of the ministry of Jesus. They caught it and they spread the good infection. And this takes us now to our second heading. We've talked about authentication now, infection. No one drove them. They, they dove in. And in their case, they spread the good infection. This is what it means when he says, you're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna be my contagion spreaders. It's the gospel. And they're going to take this out. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses. And they were. With convictional boldness, with compassion, they spread it profligately to all people. They now knew the resurrection was the rest of the story. Look at it, uh, verse 46. Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
released from the grip of fear and doubt to spread the kind of life Jesus has by way of the same thing Jesus was preaching. Jesus himself preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins from the very beginning of his ministry. Sins of both unrighteous and self-righteous varieties. Sin is the crack in everything. It's the, it's the human default mode. It's, it's our nature. It's the, it's the human propensity to mess things up, either by what we do, what we think, what we say, or what we don't do, say, or think. Acts of commit, uh, omission, the, the, the right we know to do and don't do. All of it is sin. It's unrighteous. It's self-righteous. Do you realize the word for witness, verse 48, you are my witnesses. It's the same word for martyr. When you see the word for witness, you're seeing the word for martyr. Same word. The encounter with God brings opposition. And, and the opposition is baked into the term witness. Why? Because many, many do not want the judgment of God communicated to them that we are responsible for our actions that God hold takes us seriously as 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 moral people and that that with eternal consequence and so repentance and forgiveness of sin is necessary to come to God through Christ we don't want to hear that though we don't want to hear that we have to turn away that's what repentance is. It's a turning away. We don't want to turn away from uh, all the places we go looking for life and think we find it. And it's a, a kind of shadow life we find. We, we don't want to turn away from that to finding, locating life in the sun. We don't want to hear about turning away from that which we worship now to worship Jesus, but, but repentance makes that turn. Repentance is not promising God you will do better or proving to God that you're really sorry. Repentance is a kind of collapsing on the provision of Jesus Christ for you because you've tried running from him. You have. You've tried hiding from him. You've tried substituting for him, seeking from sin what you can only find from a Savior. And eventually you get tired of that. Tired of running and hiding and substituting. You get tired of the alternatives. And repentance is where you face yourself in that tiredness, in that shamefulness, in that guilt. And you turn to him and you say, I need your forgiveness. I need resurrection life in place of my certain death. Repentance is where you recognize there's not just evil conceptually in the world. There's evil in me. And it cannot withstand the presence of the risen one whom we want to take up residence in us. Repentance is a recognition that Jesus is always better at being pleasing to God than I am. And I need him to cover me. I need him to resource me so that I don't go seeking my identity, my meaning, my purpose in unrighteous or, or self-righteous ways of life. The disciples knew what they were in for. 
in being tasked with being witnesses. Jerusalem had just executed with Rome's blessing this one now looking around the room at them chewing on a piece of fish. Really human. God making his way in the world will not be stopped by anything. They knew the gospel they carried would be attractive and offensive both. You know, this day, Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday is like the church's touchdown, you know? I mean, it's, it, an emphasis on the resurrection is spiking the ball. But you know, for so many other days in the life of the church, it, it feels like fourth and long, does it not? I mean, not just this time that we're, that we're in, which is a strange time, still kind of surreal. But we'll be told again this year, we the church, we'll be told again this year how many people we're losing are not sufficiently reaching. We'll be told our gospel-shaped convictions are regressive and out of step with the times and that we're on the wrong side of history, that, that the history writers of later eras will, will consider us the most backward people that ever lived. We're told this. This year, we're told, we will be told that we're marginal and that uh, our hypocrisies, due to our hypocrisies, we don't authenticate the ministry of Jesus and nobody wants to hear anything we have to say. And you know, there's truth in all of that at angles. But what's also true is that Jesus' life is still being spread. What happens when we get infected with the good infection? We emerge. It doesn't mean that you're going to be passionate all the time. It doesn't mean you're going to be up all the time. You're going to still have your seasons of struggle and, and difficulty. You may have to walk through some really hard things, but what happens when we get infected with the good infection is we emerge from the worst isolation there is, which is being preoccupied and wrapped up in ourselves such that we are deaf to the call of Jesus, blind to the glory of God in Jesus. And in that particular condition of life, we want to jump at the chance. We should want to jump at the chance to see Christ and to hear Christ. And we only get that through believing in his gospel. That's how we know we belong to him. And then we jump at the chance to see others get in on what we've gotten on, in on by grace. What we've gotten in on, we have gotten in on by grace. A grace that is always removing the superiority from us. Because in a relationship with God, we discover how it's possible to be humbled without being humiliated and to be affirmed by the God of the universe, but never exalted higher than the person of his son who remains preeminent. To be infected with the good infection of resurrection life is, is to have 
our apathy and our indifference and our fear and our doubt drained from us. And the draining may be drip by drip and it may be a torrent, a flood. But we seek the, the filling of the Spirit of God, even though we confess we, we leak. <laughs> and so we need the filling over and over again. It's a good thing that's the repeatable ministry of the Holy Spirit, to fill us because we leak. But we seek that because what happens to us when we get the good infection, when we know that this authentication of Jesus was genuine and true, and there's good reason to believe it's so, what happens when we get this good infection is we so want our desires to fit with God's designs and his ways and his means and his calls so that we pay closer attention. Pay closer attention to everything he's promised to be for us in Jesus. Pay closer attention to what he's doing in the world, working through the world, how he's still building his church day by day by day pay closer attention to where he's going to what he's doing and that we have been invited to go along that's resurrection life would you pray with me father we are grateful this day to have the provision of your son but not just the death, the life forevermore. Thank you for giving us in the gospel assurance of our hope and our confidence in you. It's not confidence in ourselves. You're working that out little by little and sometimes in a torrent flood. And we pray, Father, you will continue to do in us and for us, with us and through us, what you purpose and want. Thank you for your grace to us that shines on a dreary Easter Sunday. Thank you that the grave could not hold your dear son and that you have shared his life with us and made his glory accessible to us when someday our faith is sight. We pray that you will hasten that day by his return. For we want to see him, we want to hear him, we want to taste the marriage supper of the Lamb. We want to smell the smells and see the sights and touch it all in our renewed, glorified bodies. We thank you, Lord, for this hope that is confidence in Christ for doing all things well. Amen.